perhaps not as well known as it should be in, in Christ's church. But as we're seeing, uh, it is the lessons it teaches are of great value for those of us who find ourselves living as Christians and followers of Jesus in a world that doesn't always welcome or make it easy for faith. In fact, this world is negative when it comes to Christians working out our salvation in, in this life. And James provides excellent guidance for us in this challenging time. I'd like to begin this morning with a, with a I guess, a throwback to my years as a teacher. I started out, my first career was as a high school and middle school science teacher. And I remember distinctly how nervous and uptight my students would be on the day of a test. It's funny, sometimes they appreciated pop quizzes better than quizzes announced, because at least a pop quiz, they didn't have to worry about it ahead of time. You know, for some people, the prospect of taking a test can be very upsetting. Test-taking anxiety is a real thing. I think every student has to eventually learn how to calmly enter into an exam or a test-taking situation and to perform at his best. But I've found that if you know nothing about the test beforehand, it's pretty likely you're not going to do well. I'm afraid that many Christians today have failed to learn the basics, the rudimentary principles of test-taking from a biblical point of view. For example, a couple of weeks ago, and Scott mentioned this in his pastoral prayer, we were taught from Scripture to think about, consider, or reckon our trials, various trials, in a particular way, in light of the pure joy of the coming reward of heaven, and not necessarily in light of how you may be feeling at the moment. This kind of advice will seem strange to those of you who do not follow Jesus. It's certainly counterintuitive for a Christian who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and given a new perspective. It's also true that even veteran believers, knowing as we do everything we need to know about God and am following him in this life, we struggle at times to remember and understand how we should react in any given situation. The fact is, even if you know what's on a test, you know, open book tests are somewhat, they're not the, the, the blessing that it seems. Because now all the answers are in front of you and there's no hiding behind the fact that you didn't study because technically you should know exactly what the answer is. Even th therefore, if you know what's on a test and why you're taking the test, it's far too easy in the heat or the pressure of a biblical exam to forget to apply what we know. James focuses this morning on the dangers of earthly or material wealth. And with this example, he is describing a test that every one of us experience. Using earthly riches as like a case study, James is wrapping up this morning his instruction on how you should ma manage biblical test taking. And in this morning's passage, we have four features of biblical test-taking or of enduring trials that we need to know in order to be successful. These four features specifically help us deal with the challenge of worldly wealth. But additionally, these four features of, of biblical test-taking apply to any trial that you may have. 
at any point in your life, any one of those various trials that he mentions in verse 2 of chapter 1. So my sermon title this morning is Standing the Test, and after hearing this morning's message, I hope that you grow in your ability to not only manage material possessions and earthly riches, but I hope you gain some skill with these features of test-taking in handling any test that God may send your way. Let's begin then by reading our passage of Scripture and asking God to illuminate the preaching of His Word to our hearts. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we have read your word, we now desire to have it explained to us in a way that's clear, in a way that's uh, practical, that's helpful, in a way that's enlightening, particularly areas of, of, of unbelief in our lives, that, that it challenges us, Lord, to forsake that which is destroying us and helps us to cling and to, and to draw near to you, the one who brings life. I pray then, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations on each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Four features of biblical test-taking. First of all, standing the test requires that you adjust your values. That's the first feature of taking a biblical test or withstanding or standing in a trial, adjusting your values. You must adjust your values if you're going to stand the test of your faith. And as I mentioned, material wealth is used by James as a specific instance of helping you to see or understand what your values are, your biblical values. Notice what he says. In verse 9, he addresses believers in two categories. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and then in verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. Now, we need to recognize, first of all, that while brother is not explicitly provided to describe the rich person in verse 10, it's implied by the fact that these two phrases are in parallel. So the lowly brother, that's explicit in verse 9, and then the rich brother is implied in verse 10. So we're talking about two Christians, or two types of Christians, in the congregation of the Lord. The first type of Christian is described as lowly. The technical word here is the, the brother of humble circumstances. So when this particular brother or sister opens up his pockets, there's nothing there. If he takes out his wallet, there's a couple credit cards, maybe they're all maxed out. 
Perhaps this particular individual struggles to pay the rent on time. Perhaps rent is past due. Perhaps this individual has borrowed money from family or friends and can't pay it back. They said they would, and they can't. Perhaps this individual is an hourly laborer working for his wages on an hourly basis. Perhaps he doesn't have any benefits with his job. Perhaps he relies on public transportation. Perhaps he gets a government grant or a subsidy of some kind, not even to have to pay for the bus fare. Perhaps this person is the first one to go when a business shrinks and the economy is in trouble. Perhaps he requires, on a regular basis, new work in order to know where the next month's pay is going to come from. This is not like a salaried individual that can kind of plan the expenses all year, including a vacation in July. That's the brother of humble circumstances, but it might not just be wealth that we're talking about. His humble circumstances might also be connections. You know, poverty tends to go in threes in my experience. The humble brother, the lowly brother of, of low or, or thin means or of a few material financial possessions tends not to know people who have money either. All of his friends are poor, for example. And the people who have wealth in his life are, are not known by him on a first-name basis. He can't put them on the speed dial and just call them up and ask for you know, help or whatever. So all the features of connections in a world that's connected tend to exclude the lowly brother. The humble person tends not to have those connections. And then the third piece of poverty that I see here is, is related to the first two. It's status. So not only is the humble brother of little financial means and few people connections, therefore, in terms of that intangible status, we'll call it the cool factor. The lowly brother doesn't have it. There's no one who's singing his praises. He's not on the headlines. He's not, making, he's not setting trends and taste or in ideas in the, the marketplace of ideas. No one's asking his opinion about things. In fact, they're assuming because he is a humble brother that his opinions on things don't matter. He probably doesn't have any opinions. You know, in fact, opinions are, it's a privilege of the wealthy and the connected. Because if you're grinding it out for 10 hours a day, all you can do is eat, go to sleep, and repeat. You may not have a lot of time to develop sophisticated thoughts and opinions that might change or impact the world in a certain way. So that's the lowly brother. And likewise, who is, this, who is the second person here? The, the, the rich man is specifically described in verse 10. The rich in his humiliation. Who is the rich? Well, likewise, the rich is, is a man who has uh, an abundance of, of provision, a, a, a sure and certain job, with perhaps a whole year's wages anticipated in advance, a substantial savings account with lots of cushion, and lots of outward evidences of that wealth, like, say, not just no car, but one or two cars or three, a large, obviously uh, wealthy, ostentatious perhaps at times. The, the wealth is obvious in terms of his clothes, his house, where he lives, you can see it in, in his disposable income and how he spends his free time. 
He goes, to, he goes places that are far away, not close. Places that cost a lot of money, not a little. Because all the basics are covered by the rich man. And so you have to have something to do with this extra money. But he's also well-connected. There's, there's an old boys club or an old girls network, if you will. The, the rich know one another and they hang out together. They, they talk and, you know, there's the, the story of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates playing bridge together. At the time, the two richest men in the world are playing bridge. I'm told that in that meeting between that one particular bridge game between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, uh, Warren gave a bunch of money to Bill, like, you know, like, $25 billion just because Bill had a good idea. That's connections. Over a game of bridge that you can increase your net worth by a few or a couple of dozen billion. And obviously, when Bill Gates says something, it's going to be the headline of the paper and the Times and in the Wall Street Journal and Chicago Tribune and every other media outlets that's there. But with these two types, the lowly or the humble and the rich, I think we have types that represent the far end of a spectrum. And I don't think any of you personally know either Bill or Warren. And I'm guessing most of you are fairly well confident about where your next paycheck's going to come from. Hopefully, maybe not. But these, with these two extremes, there's a lot in between, isn't there? There's lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, upper, upper middle class. No one wants to be upper class. It just sounds snobby. So we're just upper middle class. And I believe by referring to both ends of the spectrum, James is inviting you to sympathize and relate to and identify with both extremes, but also to locate yourself at some point in between. I believe all believers are included, in other words, within the brackets that we have in verses 9 and 10 of our text. And James is commanding, in terms of my point, adjusting your values, James is commanding both groups in the Christian community to think in terms of what you cherish or value. And this is evident in our text by the word that's used by James, the word boast. James says that the, that the lowly brother should boast in a certain way and that the rich brother should boast in a certain way. What does this boasting mean? The classic definition of boast is when someone brags about something. It's when you celebrate your own achievements. Oh yeah? You should have seen what I did. And so celebrating your achievements or bragging about something or some conversation related to what you're confident in yourself about, that self-esteem factor, that's what boasting is. Apparently the self-confidence or the personal sense of confidence which the rich and the poor have need adjustment. That's why the command is given. It's, it's a command. Here's how you should boast. The implication is Lowly brother, lowly sister, rich, rich man, your boasting, your confidence is misplaced. 
your glorying, your praising, your celebration, it's off key. It's, it's out of alignment. Here's how you should boast. Here's how you should think about your life. The temptation in life and perhaps the fundamental test of faith in this life is to define yourself by your material possessions, by your earthly accomplishments, by your status, by your connections, by the things when, when you take a look at your life, by the things that you can point to. I'm good at this. I'm going this place. I have this. I am this way. And James is saying, no. You need to adjust your values. It isn't just money that's needing adjustment. It's an adjustment to more than just finances. There's a principle or a feature of the way you think about self that needs adjustment. You see, money, Paul tells us, is not evil all by itself. He says it's the root of all kinds of evil. The problem is that both rich and poor are facing circumstances in which their situation, they're allowing it to shape their thinking about themselves and about the world and about God. The influence is coming from their circumstances, starting with, I believe, their material possessions, their, their money, their network, and their status. They're allowing that to come into their brain like a value and affect the way that they're making decisions in their lives. And what James says is you're boasting in the wrong thing. Your confidence, your self-confidence, has given in to the temptation to evaluate yourself based on material rather than spiritual standards. Doug Moo is correct when he says this. Maintaining a biblical perspective in the face of material possessions is not easy. Jesus, in paraphrasing, I believe James in, in a way is addressing some things that Jesus uh, himself taught. He says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's good advice. The first feature then of the test is that you need to adjust your values. Second, and relatedly, not only must you adjust your values in order to stand the test of faith, you need to, the way that you're making the adjustment is a surprising way. Now, I have trouble knowing the difference between my rights and my lefts. So maybe, maybe you can relate to this, but whenever I have to do something on the right, I look down to see which one of my hands makes an L shape and which one doesn't. And I can recognize that, thankfully. My dad taught me early on, and maybe you've been taught this too, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey with the screw on, on, uh, on something. Except plumbers are opposite. I don't understand that. So, when I pick up a screwdriver, the first thing I do is like, all right, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, okay. That's left, that's right, okay. Right is this way, go, we're going. I have this elaborate ritual that I have to do, or I'll get it wrong almost every time. The second element or feature of, of tending the test is a little bit like this. You need to reverse your logic. So if, if, if you think that to turn the screw to the right makes it tighter, James like, no, it goes to the left. Now for someone like me, that's very frustrating because you, know, you told me once, don't, don't go mixing it up on me. 
What is valuable on earth, you see, valuable in the standards of society, is not the same thing that God values. Our logic frequently needs to be reversed. What God values is often what the world despises, and what what the world values is often what God despises. If you want to read a great explanation of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. See, the values need to be reversed. The text describes this reversal like this. The lowly brother is to boast or to have confidence in his exaltation, literally his high position. Now that's not what we would expect. That's not the world's message of where confidence comes from. Now it doesn't mean that you can just ignore bills that aren't paid or a car that's on its last legs that needs an oil change and four balding tires and oh, faith is going to make all that okay. It doesn't mean the prospect of losing your job isn't upsetting. It doesn't mean that the rising price of food or rent it doesn't seem overwhelming. God's not saying, oh, it's awesome that gas is three sixty-five a gallon when it was only three ten a gallon a couple months ago. Yeah, I love spending money on gas. Yes! Not what he's saying. He wants you to reverse your logic and recognize that your difficult reality must be understood in light of a larger picture, in, large, in, in light of a larger set of values in which rising gas prices aren't the ultimate concern for us. They are a concern. They're just not the ultimate concern. What seems negative, given the small picture of gas and food and rent and other things, maybe needing a job or lacking connections, having no status, being a reject, feeling alone, feeling unimportant, all these things. In light of the small picture where you feel that, in light of the larger picture, things tend to move the other way. I mentioned plumbing. I'm told that in the Southern Hemisphere, when, when water goes down the drain, it swirls not this way. I think this is how it swirls here. I think it swirls the other way on the other side of the world. So reversing your logic is a little bit like going to the other side of the world or going to another world. The poor man's high position, what James means by this, he says, well, yeah, right now you're definitely low and it's hard. It's not fun. It's not happy. But there is a time coming when your hardships will be over. This is hinted at in verse 12 of the text. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's my title right there in the passage, Standing the Test. James speaks of the reward of the one who endures. The high position of the humble brother also may refer to his present situation or reality. The freedom of not being a slave to all that you have. You can insert here some of the the common grace, secular principles of living a simple life that, that are so helpful as a reminder from time to time. The the humble brother just doesn't have that problem. We don't need a storage unit or a bigger barn, so to speak. A third garage for all my tools. 
I only have one set, and they're owned by the boss. There's a certain freedom that comes in not being owned by and possessed by all this stuff. And the humble brother can rejoice in that. Having a small house is easier to clean, as we have learned, because we have downsized from a big house to a smaller house. It wasn't as small as we thought. It may also be that the humble person's present reality, if you flip the page to James chapter 2, verse 5, God has chosen the humble or the poor in this world to be rich in faith, James 2, verse 5. So, lowly brother, rejoice in your high position. You're rich in faith. Thank God for that. The high position may suggest that even now, since Christ Himself, who died on the cross for our sins, has, has risen from the dead, has ascended on high, and by the Holy Spirit, from that heavenly place, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and the presence and the power and the person of Christ now indwells your heart so that you're not a slave to your riches. Rejoice in your high position, humble brother. You have been set free from the world's evaluation of your status. Status check, I don't care. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to glory and to boast in. What about the rich brother? Verses 10 and 11 describes how the rich man needs to reverse his logic. This one is a little more difficult because how on earth could a rich person glory in his humiliation, in his lowliness? A rich person isn't low. He has all the money he needs. He has all the status he needs and connections galore. Where's where's the humiliation in any of that? Well, there's a lot of debate about this and I gave this a lot of thought. This is maybe the, the biggest challenge of the sermon for me in preparing this, and this is what I've concluded. The rich person's boasting or glorying in his humiliation is this. He can have confidence because of Jesus. He or she is finally free from all of the demands that the world places on him. He does not have to be viewed through his accomplishments anymore. His status, his power, his influence need not control him. But on the basis of a condemned, rejected, crucified, despised criminal, Jesus Christ, he has a new identity. And the greatest riches he could ever get, which he can't get by any human means, have been freely given to him without any strings attached. This is the kind of joy that the rich man Zacchaeus discovered in Luke 19. This is the rich tax collector, you remember, who was defrauding people and betraying his own people by his, by his, uh, by his greed. And he heard about Jesus coming to town, so he climbed a sycamore tree. I love the details in the gospel. He's a short man, you see. 
And as Jesus walks by, he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus is like, what's this about? To make a long story short, Zacchaeus discovered that he no longer had to live for the approval of others. He could rejoice in his humiliation for once. He could put aside the pretense that rich people do, the status symbols, whether it's clothing or shoes or cars or houses or jobs or a spouse. He could just finally be the man of God's design. Now that's something to rejoice in. Jesus set him free from the rat race. Climbing over and stepping on and stepping over all of his friends. Trying to get into the best friend group and get noticed by the, by the best people. He's done. He now lives for the Lord alone. On the other hand, those who don't reverse their logic, like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, never discover such freedom. They live all their lives, even with their riches, hand to mouth. They'll never taste the joy of the equality and fraternity in a Christian community, where status is not determined based on how many rings you have or how much money you have but based on the fact that you're covered with the shed blood of Christ. I love the saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the greatest and most prominent politician and the humblest, poorest woman or man stand on equal level at the Lord's table. That's freedom. But the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he asked for some comfort in the afterlife. And Abraham says, in your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in torment there. That's Luke 16, 25. The point is this feature of test taking, reversing your logic, means you need to change your perspective. You're not just living for this life only. You have a larger picture and it's not what you think. The change in values, we're in the southern hemisphere. It goes in the other direction from everything you've been told. Scrap the playbook. You need to start, from, need to start over. Feature number three. The third feature you need to know to stand the test, James gives us a natural illustration, an example from nature, from the world of flowering grasses. In this illustration, James actually quotes part of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. Here's what he says. Isaiah says this. Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, a voice says, Cry, and I say, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I love this passage. I quote it many Sundays. I quoted it this morning, if you're paying attention, after I read the scripture. That's because my words at the end of the day are only going to endure in as much as they are the words of Christ. And these are just my ideas or my opinions on politics or current events or family or work. It just doesn't matter. But the word of the Lord endures forever. 
And so this natural illustration is designed by Isaiah about grass and flowers and wind and heat and death. It's not designed to say how bad money is or how bad wealth is for the rich man. It's just saying, enjoy it because it's not going to last you very long. The point here is a, a temporal, not a moral qualification. And so the problem then for the, for the rich man is a temporal problem. It's not having riches that's morally wrong. It's using them as if you could use them forever. And there was nothing ever that was going to change. So when James paints the picture of a rich man with a flower on a, on a blade of grass, he's saying that the problem here is to use the riches as if you gained them by yourself, using them for yourself for an eternity that you yourself have. And notice that the G word is nowhere in there. God. There's a scary illustration of this in the Old Testament with the king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. I'd encourage you to read this story because it has a couple of layers that I can't get into this morning. It's in Daniel 4, but I'll read this short excerpt. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? At this point, you should be running for cover. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar could have taken a lesson from creation, but he didn't. He could have looked around him and saw how animals die and plants die and, and all the precious metals eventually rust and corrode and turn to dust. But instead, he was blinded by his own ambition. And he didn't learn from nature, as God intends us to do, that God is the creator and you are a creature. And please don't mix those two up. There's nothing more alluring or tempting than desire to be raised up by your wealth, power, status, and public approval. But the rich man needs to learn from his environment that all flesh is like grass and that any material possession is simply an accumulation for someone else. Enjoy it while you can because it's going to be gone pretty soon. This life is only temporary. I want to make a final point here from another scripture in Psalm 49. David speaks to the rich and poor alike. Listen to these verses. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but I think it's worth it. Hear this, all peoples, Psalm 49. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. 
Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. Jesus himself taught some of these same lessons about wealth. You cannot serve both God and money. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Finally, Jay gives four features in our text that help you stand or pass the test. They are to adjust your values, reverse your logic, learn from nature, and finally know your reward. The factor of the matter is this world is not a closed system. It is open to God. Not only is God open to the world, he's involved in the world, and he's actively ordering your life, personally engaged in your affairs. His involvement may not always be obvious to you, nor may it be the involvement that you wish he was. Every circumstance in life, however, is affected by the God-centered nature. It's irreducibly God-centered, your life is. You can deny it or accept it. You cannot change it. This means there is a time in coming when your earthly life will be over and you will stand before God and give an account for the way that you've lived your life in this world to the God who gave you this life in this world. And the blessing for the Christian, for the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, like James, and I think like many of us, the blessing is this. Your reward is promised you. He promises you that you will be rewarded. And he gives us this promise, I believe, in part to motivate us and to strengthen us as we face these tests and trials in our lives. Now, the reward is described as a crown. This is not a gold crown like you see in some of the Middle Ages or something like this. In the early, in the early centuries, the crown would be awarded of uh, laurel leaves given to someone who won an athletic contest. It's also given to those who are honored for public service or people who were of high rank. And so the crown then is the crown which consists of life. It's the crown of life, verse 12. This is true life, not just earthly life, but eternal life. Jesus reminds us that he is the way and the truth and the life, and James knows this. He discovered it when he met the living Lord, not just his dead brother. The living Lord appeared to James in 1 Corinthians 15. And so James, knowing this, is calling on you to make sure your definition of life matches the definition of the Lord of life because he has given you your life and he will require of you an account for the way that you've spent your life. Psalm 136 shows that God, by offering you life, gives you comfort in the midst of your hardships now. He also helps you experience this life even now in the midst of your hardships. He doesn't completely make you wait for true life, but we taste and see that we have life abundant even in the midst of a sinful world. 
Calvin says this, since it is incomparably the greatest dignity to be introduced into the company of angels, no, even more to be made associates of Christ, he who estimates the favor of God aright will regard all other things as worthless, saying this, since the Lord has conferred on me the main thing, it behooves me to patiently endure or bear the loss of other lesser things. As I conclude, I want to share a story of when I first was married. Polly and I were given a, a large amount of cash when we, we got married. This is a tradition, American weddings. Money is given in, in little envelopes, and you need to keep track of those envelopes. And there was more money than I'd seen. I'm, it was hundreds of dollars. I don't remember how much it was, maybe more. But um, I was so amazed that on, on the way home, from our wedding, and my wife will never forgive me for this, I took a $20 bill out of that, that stack of cash and I literally threw it out the window. Just threw it out the window. She was mad. But I said, I said, hey, there's plenty here. That didn't help. <laughs> but B, I said, you know, um, our life isn't about money, so I made a spiritual point about it, of course. But I think I got it wrong. The issue wasn't that we had a large stack of cash. I think the issue was that I needed to rejoice in my humble circumstances. My humble circumstances. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That I might be known no longer as myself, but as Christ's. And had I understand those humble circumstances, A, I would have asked her before I did that foolish thing. And B, I wouldn't have been focused on getting rid of cash and literally throwing it out the window. But I'd have been focused on serving God and my new bride, which is a lesson I'm still learning to this day. So as we end this morning's message, I want to leave you with a couple of applications. First of all, a mental application. I want you to remember, as I've, I've stressed it this morning, wealth is more than money. And James's concern here is not just about money, it's also status and networks and power. And if you're poor or impoverished in any of these areas, recognize your high position. You're also not burdened by those things. It's a great responsibility to have power and then have to use it for God. Most people fail. And there's a little show that's going to be on this afternoon. I don't know if you've heard of it, but some of you might be watching it. And in that show are going to be paraded before your eyes one millionaire after another. And ask yourself, is that person who has been entrusted with worldly wealth using his or her status and influence and power to the glory of God? Ask yourself that before you covet or desire or even celebrate their accomplishments. Secondly, a spiritual application. Think about your spiritual actions this week. For example, are you going to go through your week in an attitude of prayer? Is the Bible and God's Word going to be your daily guide? Are you going to reach out to a Christian friend a fellow sojourner, someone who's following Jesus. 
if you hit a, troubles, a troublesome spot in your week where you need help. Make a point to strengthen your spirituality this week through prayer, through reading, through Christian fellowship. In fact, maybe read Scripture together with another Christian friend, a woman or a man. Maybe pray together. And finally, a practical application. You know, I think God is doing quite a few good things in your life. And I don't know each of you individually to the detail that I can say this with a long list, but whether you're young or old, whether you're a new believer or a mature follower of Christ, I think there's a lot you can be thankful for. Practically, I think you ought to focus on the good things that God is doing. Sometimes my wife and I call this making a list of gratitude. And we'll do it at bedtime when sometimes we're tempted to feel bad about how our day went. We'll say two or three positive things about the day. What are some things you're thankful for? This helps us to reprioritize and to make sure we're seeing ourselves in the high position that we're given. Particularly that we're adopted as sons and daughters of God that our sins are forgiven, that we have one another, we have a home, we have friends and a church family that loves us and that is walking with us through life's difficulties. And we know this isn't going to last forever. With Paul, we know that henceforth there is laid up for us the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and also to all of you who long for his appearing. Let us pray. Father, thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, and raising us out of the ash heap. The Blessed Virgin Mary said that he has raised up the lowly and seated them with kings. (laughs) And who better would have known that than, than Mary, who was a little regarded, unknown, poor young woman, And yet you chose her to be the mother of the Messiah. And all generations since then have called her blessed. We thank you for Mary and all the other unknowns and and little knowns in the world that have such a high position. And I'm I'm ashamed and embarrassed of myself for being caught up so often in in the cool kids club, wanting to fit in and make a name for myself when you've done that and you've given me everything I need for life and godliness in the gospel, the good news of my Savior, my dying and rising Savior, so that even as a Western American middle-class citizen, I am rich in so many ways. I rejoice that I am worthy to be counted amongst that humble gang of the last, the least, and the lost, the followers of the Lamb, who was despised and rejected. He was put low that we might be raised up. We thank you for Jesus, Father, so we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.